You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. My name is John Horgan. I'm a longtime correspondent for whatever this show is called now. It's, I think, um, Mind Body Problems, but it's part of Meaning of Life TV and Blogging Heads TV, this platform created by Robert Wright. I also teach at um, Stevens Institute of Technology. I'm a longtime writer for Scientific American. And um, with me today is another uh, science ink-stained wretch, Michael Brooks. And I'm, I'm really thrilled to have you here, Michael, because um, we share uh, some common obsessions yeah. and uh, we also have a history. So I'll, I'll ask you about that in a second, but can you just sure. give us an introduction of who you are and, and where are you right now? So right now I'm in a town called Lewis on the south uh, coast or almost on the south coast of England. So I'm, I'm like 50 miles south of London is where I live. And it's getting dark, so I'm going to have light issues probably in the, in the next few. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. So I work as a science writer. Um, I am a consultant to New Scientist magazine. And uh, I write for various other people. You know, I write for Nautilus these days. Um, I'm writing for you know, The Guardian. But I'm also writing a lot of books now, which... Yeah, my, my attention span has got longer and longer. So, you know, where I used to write news, science news stories, now all of a sudden I'm writing like 90,000 word books. So, you know, that's progress in my life. Right. Well, I, you, you, uh, you have a book that came out recently that, uh, that I've read and I want to talk about it because I love it. This, that's, I'm just going to hold it up now. Oh, yeah. Called the Quantum, Astrono- the, the Quantum Astrologer's Handbook. It's really yeah. great. I don't know if this is the, if this That's is the U.S. edition. Okay, U.S. U.S. edition. Yeah, yeah, that is the U.S. edition. But before we get to that, oh, oh, first of all, I want to mention that you're not just a science writer like I am. I mean, you know, I, I majored in English in college, and then I went to journalism <laughs> school. So okay. I have actually no right to comment on science, as scientists often point out to me. You you've got a fucking PhD in physics. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I have a PhD in quantum physics. Uh, I did my PhD like many eons ago, uh, but I pretty much left as soon as I finished my PhD. I, I kind of decided that my, my heart was more in kind of, you know, surfing around and seeing what other people were doing than it was in kind of putting my head down and just doing this one thing in the lab for the rest of my life. And it didn't help them. I mean, my, my supervisor was a bit of a psycho as well. So it was good to get out of there. And, your, um, your supervisor was John Barrow, right? No, 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 no. And and and, uh, <laughs> and let that not be said. Um, I'm not even going to name my supervisor. Oh, okay. <laughs> After calling him a psycho, I guess that's wise. Yeah, yeah. But no, it wasn't John Barrow, I can tell you that. John Barrow was a great guy. Um, and so I, I got out and started writing uh, science stuff pretty much straight away um, and and just sort of decided that, it was useful to have a PhD, right? I mean, I think you have every right to comment on science, by the way. Um, you know, don't let any scientist tell you anything else. I think everybody has a right to comment on science. Uh, but the, the thing was that I think having the PhD did open some doors. It made life a little bit easier mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, you're the kind of one of us. Um, but that made it all the worse when I kind of turned on them as well. <laughs> ah, 
so you know so it's like you're one of us how can you be you know how can you be so critical of of what we're doing or don't you understand and so i mean there's a general problem i guess you know we could talk about in science journalism that it's just not critical enough you know it, it's sort of you know it's cheerleading so much of the time it's like yay scientists have done this great thing and isn't it amazing and the world's going to be a better place and as we you know as we know that's not really how how things work out yeah absolutely well i i certainly agree with you there um but uh, so we're, I want to come back to science writing because your yeah. science writing, you're doing some really interesting experimental things with your writing, uh, certainly in, in uh, Quantum Astrologer's Handbook. But first, I've got to ask you, I've got to bring up our shared history. So yeah. I met you in 2005. We both got this uh, fellowship from the Templeton Foundation, which they probably won't like it when I describe them this way, but really what they do is try to foster dialogue and even reconciliation between science and re- religion, uh, or maybe science and spirituality, if you want to be a little yeah. more vague. And so there were, what, like maybe 15 journalists who were all brought so, to, yeah. to Cambridge. And then, and it was like first class treatment. This is for three weeks. And we had a series of scientists and philosophers come in to talk about science and religion. And, uh, the, 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 I'd say token atheist was a really good token atheist. It was Richard Dawkins. It was. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and there was one particular night where we, we'd been hanging out with Dawkins all day and talking, and I think we'd had dinner and then we're, we're drinking. And there was a group of, I don't know, maybe a half dozen of us who were talking to Dawkins and, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, it was. So a, it was you, do you want me to? I mean, I, I can tell yeah. the story. So, yeah. um, so, so the backstory of this is that I, uh, so ever since I was like 13 years old, had been involved in evangelical churches, uh, particularly the one in my hometown where I grew up, and um, I was like, a, you know, fully paid up member. Yeah, you know, I was, I was really involved, and all through my adult life. Up until this point, you know, I was a, I was a heavily involved, you know, committed Christian um, in the evangelical churches, you know, which, you know, you, you and others will be aware of the kind of, you know, hardcore Bible is truth kind of uh, stance. And I was very much part of this. And, um, and people, you know, in my career had found it quite difficult to reconcile this because, you know, I was doing science and and how did that fit with my sort of beliefs about Christianity? And the, the truth of it was that they were completely compartmentalized. So I had never really sort of tested one against the other, never felt like they had to compete. And part of my reason for taking that fellowship on was because I just kind of felt like it was time to, you know, make, you know, actually ask a question, I guess, um, and, and see whether, you know, my faith stood up to this kind of interrogation. And I remember we met on the the first day we were there and uh, you said to me, no way, man, you're, you're going to be an atheist. Like next time I see you. <laughs> and uh, which was really interesting. So anyway, so, so this is the kind of you know, setting the scene. Um, and one of my experiences uh, as a, as a Christian, I spent a couple of years in, in Africa, in West Africa, teaching physics in a high school. And one of my experiences there was I met, I went to a, a like a revival crusade meeting it was run by uh, some American guy whose name I don't remember. And it was a big thing in the stadium. And uh, we had this, uh, you know, the kind of, you know, fiery brimstone kind of talk. Uh, the preacher was preaching. And then he asked people in the audience to be praying for each other. 
And, you know, I was there, I was a committed Christian, I was willing to sort of pray for people. And he was like specifically like, you know, God's going to heal the sick uh, amongst us tonight. And I want you to, you know, if you're sick, if you need prayer, I want you to find somebody to pray with you. And I, I uh, so I kind of turned around. There was this woman, um, as I recall this story, there's this woman who was stood there who had uh, what I now know, I, I, I didn't know at the time, uh, cataract. So this is, uh, by the way, I mean, I'm sort of 25 years old at this point, right? So um, this is the mid 90s. And, um, and she, she had cataract and she uh, asked me to pray for her and I prayed for her. And when I looked at her again, the cataracts were gone, right? This, this is, you know, I'm, I'm telling the story as, as my memory of the story. Uh, and this completely freaked me out. Like, you know, I mean, I'd been a Christian for, you know, all my adult life, through my teenage years, uh, and I never encountered anything that was like remotely miraculous. So, so this, not only had I kind of uh, thought that I'd seen a miracle, I also thought that, you know, I had been the kind of the vessel that conveyed this miracle. And, uh, and so this, you know, this freaked me out. And I actually just walked straight out of the stadium at that point. I was like, I just could not deal with it at all. Um, and uh, especially as everyone else around me was asking me to pray for them as well. So it was like, you know, kind of double jeopardy. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm not doing this again. This is like too much for me. So I got out. So anyway, uh, sort of, you know, what would it be? It would be like 10 years later. Uh, we're gathered in this room in Cambridge with Richard Dawkins. And I tell Richard Dawkins this story. Yeah. Uh, because I wanted him to kind of, you know, I wanted to get his opinion on it. You know, he was very fiercely um, atheistic. Um, and this is interestingly before the God delusion comes out. So this is before everyone knows that he's like this rampant atheist guy. And he um, uh, had just read us literally, I think the first draft of the first chapter of the book or something when we'd had this seminar, you know, so, so he sort of tried it out on us and wanted to know our reaction. So we've been discussing this stuff. And I said, so I said, you know, Richard, here's a story. Here's something that happened to me. So I can tell you it's, you know, it's, it definitely happened this way. Uh, you know, what do you make of this? And uh, he said, uh, very, so he listened very intently uh, and very respectfully and very gracefully actually said, well, I don't know if you've heard about this, but actually a lot of these kind of, you know, big time preachers and missions, uh, crusades, especially when they're in the developing world, uh, they tend to um, use plants in the crowd. So they, they will put people in the crowd who pretend to be ill in some way, you know, something uh, about them, you know, that needs healing. And then they pretend to be healed. And then the idea, if you're going to be charitable, uh, the idea is to increase faith in the crowd. Um, if you're not going to be quite so charitable, it's basically duplicitous and deceitful and uh, a and, and means to get money out of people. Um, and he said, you know, it may be that this happened to you, that you were just the victim of somebody who was, you know, scamming you um, and scamming the people around you and, and maybe even was paid by the mission people to, you know, to sort of somehow, you know, make this miracle seem like it happened. You know, she, she was blind and now she can see. And this had never, ever occurred to me, right? This had never occurred. I'd never come across this in my um, experience of being in churches and, and, you know, talking to people in churches. Nobody had ever mentioned that there was this kind of thing went on. And, um, and I just kind of went, oh, okay. Well, that seems like a good explanation. It's certainly a less sort of um, implausible explanation than I did a miracle, right? I mean, you know, that's, that's how I feel about it. And um, so my feeling was that um, I had to take that on board. And, and, and what for me had been one of those moments that was a kind of defining moment, like God must be a real thing. 
um, suddenly had an element of doubt to it, I guess, uh, thanks to Richard Dawkins. And, um, and I think my faith basically went on to crumble from there. It, it's, it's funny. See, what, what I remember, I mean, so I was right there and I was enthralled by the whole yeah. interaction. Your story was amazing. What I recall is that there was some, there was another exchange at the end uh, where I think maybe I, I said to Dawkins, is there anything that would convince you that a miracle really had taken place? Um, can you imagine pre- being presented evidence uh, of, of a miracle? And Dawkins, and I thought he would just say, no way, there's always got to be a natural explanation for these things. Um, but he, again, as I recall, he sort of thought about it. He goes, well, if the evidence was there, I, I would have to take it seriously that maybe this had been some kind of medical miracle. And I remember being astonished that he said that because I would completely dismiss any report of a miracle. I would think that there has to be some explanation, um, a natural explanation. Uh, And so I felt like at that moment, Richard Dawkins was much more open-minded than I was. And it made me really feel, it made me admire him. He was, he, he was really sort of, he was really very respect, respectful toward you, as 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 you said, uh, but also showing this extraordinary open mindedness, and that's always yeah. stuck in my head. Yeah, I, I I have to agree with you. I I I think the problem came when uh, you know he he sort of elevated or got elevated to the status of you know the chief atheist. And um, and he started to sort of take the nuance out of some of his arguments. And so he became this, you know, incredibly difficult, you know, confrontational, cantankerous Oxford, you know, academic. And actually, when you talk to him one on one about these things, and I have done since, you know, we've met a couple of times at conferences and and um, and we've talked, you know, by email and on the phone. Uh, and when you talk to him about these things, you know, he is full of nuance and he understands like why religion exists in the world. He understands, you know. The, that actually human beings are naturally religious and these things are kind of hardwired and it's it's cognitive effort to be an atheist you know it's not the other way around it's not like it takes a lot of cognitive effort to believe in god and and he understands all these things but he leaves those out of his you know very public discourse arguments and just kind of calls people stupid or you know simple-minded or whatever which is i i know that's not what he actually thinks it just suits his kind of rhetoric at the time and so, you know, I think the public and private face uh, of Dawkins is, is they're different things. And I think that's actually a real shame because um, he, he actually is a quite a, you know, a gracious, as you say, respectful guy and, and was actually, I felt quite helpful to me, you know, and, and wasn't, you know, condemning me in any way, but, you know, also just opened my you know, mind to other possibilities and other ways of interpreting that event that had meant so much to me and, and did it very gently. Yeah. Um... Well, that was one of the high points of my science writing career. Uh, it was fun. I mean, the whole thing was great fun. It was. Um, but it seems to me that since then, you, you know, you might not be a Christian anymore. You might not believe in any kind of conventional God. But in your science writing, you were very much exploring some of these border areas between faith and science and, and questioning some scientific dogma and um 
and also taking seriously some ideas uh, that would be dismissed as pseudoscience by most, um, by certainly by like kind of the hardcore skeptic atheist types, yeah. like Richard Dawkins. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm in my head, I'm as skeptical as everybody else, you know, but I'm, I'm sort of aware maybe more than some others that, that scientists are human beings, you know, and that they're not robots. They, they like to portray themselves as dispassionate robots, you know, that, that have no agenda at all apart from to uncover the truth. And, and of course, we, you know, we know that's not, not the case at all. And that everybody has their kind of, you know, human foibles. And we have this sort of strange situation where science is this effort to overcome our biases and overcome our natural inclinations to superstition. You know, like, you know, Arthur Eddington was so obsessed by uh, the fine structure constant, you know, this electromagnetic constant, um, which uh, basically boils down to one over 137, that he became obsessed by the number 137. And... <laughs> I read something recently that said if he was in a you know, like in a conference uh, hall or something, and the, and he was leaving his coat, if there was a peg one three seven, he wanted his coat on that peg, kind of thing, you know, just do kind of irrational, strange things. And so what I've always tried to do is kind of explore some of those areas where there's a a clash uh, between the values of science, science as they're laid out in you know, I wrote this book uh, called Free Radicals: The Secret Anarchy of Science where I was kind of talking about science as a brand. And I think the brand science has these very clear brand values of, you know, we're a safe pair of hands. We're entirely rational. Um, you know, we're, we're not emotional in any way. We're just, you know, and of course, you know, the, the, that's just not how science works. And you look at the history of science and it's full of people who are losing their shit over, you know, over, you know, contests, contests with their colleagues. And, you know, there's people taking LSD in order to train their brain to discover, you know, how to replicate DNA. And, you know, people do all kinds of, you know, stuff that, that doesn't really fit with the brand. And I've always been really interested by those things. I've been interested by the things that scientists can't explain after, you know, decades of attempting to explain those things. So things like, you know, things that are very mainstream science, like dark matter, for instance, you know, this missing matter of the universe which we've known has been missing since 1933 and we've never found it. And we're still looking at it. And I just like read a story yesterday where it's like, it's time to ramp up the search for dark matter. It's like that time has long passed now. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. And, you know, but you can't say it's time to ramp up the search. It, you know, we're going to be hitting the centenary of the discovery of dark matter, you know, in our life, you know, in the next sort of, you know, what, 22 years or sorry, uh, 12 years, you know, the, and, and, and yet it's like, we can't, say it's not there we have to have it you know we just have to keep looking for this stuff and so you get this kind of interaction of uh, i guess what is human psychology and science and this kind of and then there's the kind of mystic side of of you know this obsession we have with saying you know wanting to make sense of the universe and and thinking we have to you know somehow sort of make sense of the universe and and um so you get things like you know carl sagan who says, oh, you know, we're a way for the universe to understand itself. You know, the famous quote from Carl Sagan, which is a, a lovely thing. But actually, it's effectively, you know, that, that's Carl Sagan setting out his stall for a, for a new cult, if you like. It, it's like, you know, that, that's, how, that's how we should, we should see ourselves as a way for the universe to understand ourselves. You know, it's, it's you know, a few you know, short steps and, and leaps there. And, and you're kind of in the, in the realms of, of uh, L. Ron Hubbard, aren't you? So, <laughs> oh, I can. Th this is why you get in trouble with some of uh, some of your uh, scientific former colleagues. 
Same. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, I think it's really interesting. You know, I've often thought, you know, my PhD is in quantum physics. There's so much that's so interesting about quantum physics. And, the, you know, the older I get, I guess, the more interesting it becomes to me because we, you realize how little we understand. And also, not only that, but how many decades of people sort of fighting with each other over how to interpret it and what this means and what that means. You know, and I've been at conferences where people have almost like had a stand-up row over breakfast, you know, because like, I believe in many worlds. And if you don't believe in many worlds, then you're stupid and, and that kind of thing. And, and it's just fascinating kind of sociology, really. Absolutely. I, okay, so that's a good segue to your, to your book, Quantum Astrologer's Handbook. Yeah, uh, okay. So you, can you just, because it's yeah. a book about sort of early, I don't know, what is this, early Renaissance yeah, very early Renaissance. So, so it, it sort of it opens at the beginning of the 16th century, and uh, the book is focused on this guy uh, called Jerome Cardano, who's a who's an astrologer. Um, once he, you know, once he gets through college, he trains as a doctor, and uh, this is in Milan, in Italy. In so, so he he's born in 1501. He trains as a doctor. Eventually, uh, he's not allowed to practice. Partly because while he was a medical student, he wrote a book and published a book about how little doctors understand about what they're really doing. So he's, <laughs> denied, he's denied. And like, I mean, this guy had no idea how to interact with people at all. Was, I mean, he's kind of <laughs> hilarious. But I became obsessed with him, like the more I read about him, because he was so open to all these kind of, you know, thinking differently. He didn't care what people thought of him. Um, well, he did care, but he couldn't help himself from alienating those around him, you know, if he didn't agree with them. So he pissed off all the doctors in Milan and was refused a medical license. So he ended up like treating people undercover after dark and stuff. And and uh, and he was he was um, he got himself through medical school by uh, gambling in the taverns and pubs and inns and stuff. And uh, and he realized that in order to win and make enough money to live, he had to work out how gambling kind of worked. So he wrote down a load of notes on like probability uh, uh, you know looking at a deck of cards or a roll of a dice you know what are the outcomes how should i bet you know and and this kind of thing uh, and this was the first incursion anybody ever made into probability uh he never published it in his lifetime it was found after his death th these notes and it's published as uh, on games of chance which is like the first book on probability um and so he you know he's sort of this this but he's still hopeless at gambling still loses loads of money uh, even though he's literally the only guy on the planet who understands what's going on, and <laughs> and uh, and so he you know he becomes this underground doctor, and eventually he gets recognised as being actually a pretty skillful doctor, uh, and he manages to get elevated, and he gets elevated right to the point where he is like one of the most famous men in Europe, like halfway through the 16th century. He gets called uh, to Scotland from Italy to treat the Archbishop of Edinburgh. Uh, who, who has terrible asthma and is sort of, you know, in, in, doesn't know where else to go, calls, uh, sends a letter to Cardano. Cardano travels up through France. He's not allowed into Lyon before they've laid on a civic procession for him. That's how, like, well, you know, known he was. He's not allowed to leave Paris until they've held three conferences in his honour. And he goes down the line. And, and uh, when he's in Scotland, he gets a call from the King of England to come and, like, treat him as well. Uh, so this is the kind of level at which he's operating now. And then um, towards the end of his life, he suffers enormous academic uh, problems with his colleagues who are jealous of his status and everything else, gets kind of, you know, absolutely scuppered. And then he gets arrested by the Inquisition uh, uh, and um, 
and he's sort of put it under house arrest, not allowed to publish or teach or do anything uh, for the rest of his life. And, and so disappears. And like, this is why none of us have ever heard of him. You know, he just, you know, a few mathematicians know about him. You know, there's, a, you know, there's now some sort of scholarly literature about him. But, but um, it was amazing to me to find this guy who was you know, asking questions about astrology. You know, he was, he was a practicing astrologer who, you know, because it paid the bills, basically. It was a, another way of paying the bills. But while he did that, he also published works on how um, the public could look up at the sky and kind of, you know, interpret the stars for themselves. And like, this star is here and this is there. And you'll see this move through the sky. So he, he published a guide to astronomy, you know, as a way of proving that, you know, he wasn't just a charlatan. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he published this book on medicine saying, you know, don't believe everything doctors tell you. And so he was like, you know, this incredible sort of skeptic. He was skeptical about astrology. He said, I don't know why this should work. Um, and I'm not even sure it does work, but that's a kind of heretical sort of way of, of seeing things. So I just kind of became obsessed by him and this ability he had to kind of question everything. He was an amazing mathematician as well. And, and like, you know, was, um, responsible for us solving like the, the quartic equation, X to the four kind of equations. Um, and and, he, had, and yeah, he, he couldn't get he, on with anybody. And he was one of the first people to, to play with imaginary numbers, right? Yeah, so he absolutely. So people in the past had seen that if you had, so an imaginary number, a square root of minus one, right? It shouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. And he had seen, or the I mean, people, mathematicians in the past had seen sums that had to be solved that included these square roots of negative numbers and they just thought they'd done something wrong in their calculations before or they literally just ignored it and pretended those were positive numbers and he was the first one to say no this is real and actually i don't know what to make of it i don't know what these things really are but they're definitely part of you know how we have to take mathematics forward if we're solving algebra so this is all about understanding algebraic equations and so he faced up to it you know and then a a couple of decades down the line uh, one of his, um, uh, so another Italian guy called Raphael Bombelli actually took it further and did what we know now as complex numbers and said, oh, we just separate them out into real and, and imaginary numbers. Uh, so so Cardano was like, you know, this stuff is real. Um, I don't know how to deal with it, but it's definitely something that somebody should deal with. Uh, and uh, and what, what made it, um, why I call him the quantum astrologer is because he invented probability theory and imaginary numbers and those two are the central pillars for quantum theory you can't do quantum theory without them so i i can't in the book i go back and talk to him about all that right well so what i like about him is that he seems like he seems like a very modern figure and 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 the way that all these different contradictory things are swirling around in in his head and he's you know he's trying to get by in life he's trying to make a living he's trying to find love and he's got a really complicated family life he's also trying to figure out how the world works he's obsessed yeah. with understanding nature and um and i i appreciate that because uh, over you know i i'm i've been obsessed recently with the mind body problem and uh which seems to me to be kind of at the bottom of every single scientific mystery you, you know you keep going and you end up with the relationship between mind and matter yeah. and uh I wrote a book a couple of years ago called mind body problems. And the thesis was that all our efforts to understand the mind body problem, which are sort of efforts to understand ourselves and our relation to, to the world and to other people. It's, it's, it's always, it's always subjective. We can never make this an entirely rational scientific 
enterprise. And, yeah. uh, and Jerome seemed to embody that. Um, and, and I, I feel like we're still, you know, there, the idea of the age of reason and the scientific revolution, it suggests that at some point we went from that kind of medieval superstitious nonsensical way of, uh, of understanding the world to our modern enlightened understanding of the world. And that's just obviously bullshit. (laughs) And what I like about the book also is that you implicate yourself as the narrator. Uh, You're also trying to sort of navigate the world and, uh, and you know, you're steeped in quantum mechanics and you're sort of after decades of, of looking at quantum mechanics, you're sort of going, what the fuck? I don't know what it means. Yeah. Nobody yeah. else does either. Yeah. So for me, what was interesting was that I, I kind of, you know, I became obsessed with Cardano and, and I was really like even more obsessed with him once I realized that he had this strong link to quantum theory. And, um, and then I realized that actually I'd never, ever written in any of my books about quantum theory. You know, sort of, you know at this point, I had like, you know, six or seven or eight books behind me. And I'd never touched this subject, which was supposed to be my subject. And I really, and I, so I sort of thought about it a lot. And I, I realized the reason was, is that nobody actually understands it. I, I didn't want to write another one of those books as like, oh, here's, um, here's why quantum theory is really cool. And, uh, you know, and it just felt like to me, it wasn't cool. It, there's nothing cool about this thing. You know, it, this is, this is an unsolved mystery that everybody sort of, sort of portrays as if it's like the, the greatest thing that we've got and and yeah it works and you can calculate stuff and, and you know obviously modern technology relies on it on our understanding of it but at the same time you know you can buy a quantum cryptography device and nobody in the universe can tell you how that thing works <laughs> you because know, it because it works through quantum entanglement and quantum entanglement is this utter mystery you know so we can make technology out of it it doesn't mean we understand it so i wanted to write a book that was kind of honest about um, you know where we are with it, and and what the problems are, and where those problems come from, and and which kind of bits have been ignored, and and you know why people haven't really solved any of this or made actually much made much progress since you know the nineteen thirties. So um, this is another reason why uh, I reacted so strongly to your book um, is I for the last six months or so I've been trying to, as a kind of COVID project, I've been trying to learn quantum mechanics with the math oh, for the right. first time in my life. So for decades, I've been pontificating about quantum mechanics without knowing anything about it, really. I mean, I yeah, sort of yeah. know it from the outside. Uh, I read the popular books, I talk to the experts, uh, but I, I never understood what the Schrodinger equation is. I didn't know anything about, you know, people would refer to matrices and things like that. Dirac notation. I don't know what they're talking about. And I just decided to try to do something about it. And, um, and the weird thing is that the more, and I actually just finished taking a course at my school. Well, next week will be the, uh, the last week, an introduction to quantum mechanics. Um, for engineering applications. Okay. You know, cause I teach at an engineering school. So it's, it's kind of shut up and calculate yeah, that, yeah. that philosophy, um, you know, virtually no attention to uh, interpretations or anything like that. But the, the more I'm sort of learning about quantum mechanics, and of course my understanding is still ridiculously primitive differential equations just kill me. I have a really, <laughs> hard time right. with it. but 
I'm becoming more, more and more suspicious of the whole enterprise of quantum mechanics <laughs> the more I get into it. And I'm also becoming more suspicious of the whole idea, this kind of faith of physicists, that ultimate reality is mathematical and that our final theory will be this beautiful mathematical theory, that that's the way to understand the world. The mathematics, at least in this point in my, my effort to learn this stuff, seems so arbitrary and kind of kludgy. That's um, interesting, yeah. yeah. I mean, so for, I just discovered recently that the Schrodinger equation, I mean, this is every, every physicist knows this, that it, it can't provide a precise description of a helium atom. And, no. you know, because a helium atom is an example of a three-body problem. Uh, so you need all these sort of patches and approximations and everything. And yet the physicist, you know, Stephen Hawking talked about the quantum, the, or the wave function of the entire universe. So where do they get off <laughs> this, with this hubris? So anyway, this is, this, is, I'm, this is my next book project to write about quantum mechanics and, and mathematics and, you know, what they actually tell us about the world. But I'm curious where... What do you think is going to happen with quantum mechanics? Do you? Uh, so, I mean, I, I mean, I don't. Obviously, I don't know. Um, my speculation is that uh, you know, since we've basically made no progress whatsoever in in a hundred years, apart from you know, people putting together like you know, Everett putting together his uh, many worlds idea, and it's mathematically based. And uh, but the thing is, the mathematics takes you so far, and. And the thing about quantum theory is you can work with the mathematics. And like you say, you can do the calculations. You can shut up and calculate and just say, you know, I'm going to get this out of this experiment. I'm going to get that out of that experiment. But it doesn't tell you actually what's going on in any of the experiments. You know, you need these interpretations, as they're called, in order to say something about the nature of the world. And it seems to me they, sh they just fall really short. I mean, I'm sure that none of the interpretations we've got at the moment are right. Um, I, I think they're, they're not even very good answers to things. So, so you have something like many worlds and then people take it to the extreme where they say, oh, you know, that means there's another version of you in another universe. And I'm like, shut up. I mean, really? <laughs> because, you know, in order for you to make that statement, you would have to understand what it means to be me. I, you would have to understand what consciousness is, you know, because I, you know, you are talking about a version of me and, and as far as I'm aware, there's only one version of me because I'm conscious of myself. And I don't know if anybody else is conscious. I don't know what consciousness actually is. So for them to, you know, sort of then suddenly make this leap to like, there's another version of you in the other universe. And when you die here, you know, this version of you will live on, which is what Everett believed. I mean, Everett said, I will never die. There will always be some version of me that's alive. And that's just, I mean, it's sort of philosophy, but it's bad philosophy, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's not great. And, um, and it, it just shows, you know, the massive gaps in between what we know in the math and what the math says about the world. And then the thing we try and lay on top of this, like, you know, like it's you know, some super heavy, like piece of concrete that goes on top of this. And then we walk across it and say, oh, you know, we've got this, this, you know, other universe with me. But what you've just squashed under that piece of concrete is the only bit that actually matters, which is what, you, you know, is the maths of quantum theory which was only set up, I mean, I, so I give this talk um, called Quantum Theory for Beginners. 
and I kind of do it in bars and pubs and, and uh, in, in England. And it, it's kind of good fun because, you know, people come along and they, they've heard of quantum theory, but they don't really know what it's about. So I start off with all those quotes, you know, like, oh, you know, if you think you've understood quantum theory, you haven't understood it. And if you're not shocked by it, then you haven't understood it. And I was like, this, this is the reason you're here. Like everyone tells you this, this amazing sort of theory. And actually the truth is we just don't understand. That, that's why, you know, we sort of dress it up with all these quotes and all these kind of, fancy many worlds ideas is because we're we're grasping around in the dark and and i think there are people who are willing to say there must be a theory beyond quantum theory right so there must be um something missing which is what einstein and schrodinger both believe there's something missing from it and uh and people said no 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 it works really well it, you know all the experiments you get out the result that quantum theory tells you you're going to get and that's only partially true because quantum theory doesn't tell you anything apart from like if you calculate it and you do like a hundred thousand experiments, this is the result you'll get on average, right? That, that's what quantum theory tells you. But what it doesn't tell you is if you do that experiment once, you'll you'll match up with the theory because there's a, like a huge gulf between the the theory and what it says about experiments. So it's kind of not really true what we say about quantum theory always matches with experiments. Because it only matches with experiments on average, right? It doesn't individually. So, so Einstein and Schrodinger both knew this, and they both walked away from it because of this, because nobody was either facing up to it or able to resolve it. And they thought, you know, let's just go and do something more interesting. And um, and I don't think we've moved on a great deal since that point, really. Um, and yeah, there are lots of physicists who will tell you and have told me, you know, there must be a theory underneath it. You know, we need to look for, you know, something that causes these, you know, wave function collapses, if you like. Um, although you won't get any any two sort of agreeing on what a wave function actually is. Is it a real thing or is it a description or you know, is it the, the thing that we're holding in our hands when we have an atom? And, um, and you know, when I'm giving this talk, I, I sort of about, about 10 minutes in, I tell them that really this is a talk about how a light bulb works. You know, because this is how the whole thing started with Max Planck trying to work out how a light bulb works. And that's why he had to invent quantum theory, which he said was an act of desperation. And ever since then, you know, we, we basically, you know, we've invented like multiple parallel universes in order to be able to explain how a tungsten filament light bulb works. I mean, that, that's, and we're now 120 years on and that's, we're still in this position where we're kind of making shit up in order to kind of give ourselves a sort of sense that, yeah, we're getting somewhere with this. And so, you know, we need experimental results that undercut like quantum theory that because we know quantum theory must have something underneath it there must be some other thing you know that we assume that the universe is random because you know quantum theory has randomness but quantum theory only seems to have randomness if you think that that's the absolute final theory of the universe you know and this is what einstein never accepted he's like there must be something missing and i think you know hopefully we'll find a way of doing experiments that show us the missing thing but um we we haven't got there yet i uh so i had heard this term super determinism before i'm sort of friends with sabina hassenfelder oh, yeah, um, yeah. and uh i think she's into super determinism she's yes, she is, yeah I, I never really i i never read um her descriptions of it as carefully as i should have in part because i know that i think she uses it to disparage free will and I'm a hardcore believer in free will. And so I'm, I'm, I'm actually not that interested in arguments that 
demolish free will because I'm sure it exists. So I know that that argument. John, you should never declare your biases. What are you doing? (laughs) It's too late. (laughs) I, I, I can't, I can't help but, you know, blabbing about my biases, but super determinism, the way you described it was really fascinating to me. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about it. It strikes me as, is it kind of sort of the ultimate hidden variables yeah, so it's it's related to the idea of hidden variables, uh, which is, you know, when there's something in your experiment that you don't know about, and those are the that's the thing that's causing this result that, you know, you see the result, you know, why the result happened. And and so um, Louis de Broglie in the 1920s, and, and then it was reinvented by... Um, uh, David Bohm. David Bohm, uh, again in the 1950s. And the idea was like, there's something missing that we can't, see that that would explain what all these things are and we've never been able to find those things and we should have been able to see those hidden variables from that pilot wave theory as as um, david bohm called it um so super determinism kind of takes it a bit further than that and and i'm not sure who really originated the idea there's a dutch physicist called gerard hoft who um i mean he's a nobel prize winner right so he's no idiot and and his sort of view is to say well you know there's some kind of connections between all of the matter in the universe effectively uh, so that when you do a quantum experiment you know you think you're setting uh, the experiment up with the inputs independent of the detector so you set the detector you set the inputs and then you know the the thing goes in and the detector detects something and then you can say something about like what the universe is made of and and the view of, of super determinism is to sort of say, well, actually, what if you can't separate out this set of atoms in the detector from this set of atoms that you're putting into your experiment? And what if the the settings for your detector actually change like whatever it is that's going on inside those atoms to give you a certain kind of output? And then, you know, so you can set that up so that you might see something that you think is suspicious. It's like, you know, there's these weird sort of links between stuff. And, um, and superdeterminism basically is saying, well, you know, if there's links between all these atoms, then we can't do experiments in the same way that we think we can do experiments. And then instead of really engaging properly with that, I, this is what I think has happened. Instead of really engaging with that idea, and, and, you know, there's a lot of flaws and problems with the idea, and it's difficult to really access, and it doesn't necessarily give you anything that you can sort of do experiments on and sort of um, find out whether it's right or not. But instead of really engaging with that idea, I think what most people have done is say, oh, that's ridiculous. That's like a conspiracy theory. Um, you're, you're basically saying that no scientific experiments can ever say anything because everything is interlinked and you've never got these uh, statistically independent variables in your experiment. So, so you're basically saying if this is right, then the whole of science is, is a sham. And I think that's kind of the wrong way to react to the idea. I think the idea is interesting because, of course, in science, you assume that you can control your experiment, right? So, so you can say something about what that outcome of that experiment means. But what if you can't? You know, I mean, that's effectively what I know Sabine Hosenfelder is sort of trying to set up as a discussion at the moment. And I think it's not a discussion that most scientists are wanting to have. I mean, I think that's what it comes down to. You know, it's like she's saying, well, this is an interesting way of looking at things. And, you know, she's not entirely alone. She's working, in fact, with a guy called Tim Palmer uh, in the UK. He's at Oxford now. And he used to be a weather forecaster. 
um, or you know, research forecasting and climate modeling and all that kind of stuff. And he's very into and very knowledgeable about chaos theory and attractors, you know, where, where things fall into certain patterns. And he independently started applying this and, and came towards, uh, came to the idea that super determinism might be something that might be things that pull behaviors in certain directions, like the strange attractors of chaos theory. And Sabine had been looking at it from the perspective of, uh, I think she was trying to do some quantizing of gravity. And she you know, ended up sort of looking at super determinism as a, as a way of sort of, you know, maybe you can get a kind of path into quantizing gravity, you know, ending up with something, some alternative to string theory, uh, say. Um, and, and so she ended up with it. And I think Tim Palmer found her papers or the other way around. And, and so they're collaborating now. And I spoke to her about it a while back because I was quite interested in her perspective. And she, she said they're finding it incredibly difficult to get papers published. And she said, you know, basically it's the most unpopular thing she's ever worked on. And Sabine, as you know, has worked on some pretty unpopular things. So, um, <laughs> so I, but I think it's an interesting question. It's like, have we not been able to resolve these issues with quantum theory just because they're not really resolvable because of these links, you know, and what we've sort of got down to is this level of, you know, our experiments are finding connections between all of matter, say, you know, the matter in our inputs, the matter in our detector, and what works on the macroscopic scale where we can control the independence of the variables does not work on, on the quantum scale. And, and that's, a, that's an option. That's a possibility. I'm not saying it's likely. Is it, is this kind of the ultimate, are these connections between, all the different parts of the universe, are they non-local? Is it sort of this extension of, of entanglement and non-locality to, to everything? I'm not entirely sure of that, but as I understand it, I think what certainly Sabine is saying is that um, the non-locality is a kind of illusion that's created by these things, by these connections, but the universe is not non-local. I think that's, that's right. So, so let me ask you another a sort of meta question. I, you and I, so I started writing about science in, in, um, in the eighties, you started in the nineties. Um, and back then, certainly through the mid nineties, there was this idea that it especially came from physics, but it came from other fields too. Um, and Richard Dawkins, I think contributed to this, uh, Francis Crick, um, certainly Stephen Hawking, the idea, idea was that science could basically solve the universe. It could, yeah. it could get rid of the mystery. So we look at the world now and we go, what the hell? You know, we know a lot of stuff, but there's so much we don't know. And our, our leading theories like quantum mechanics, as you've been saying, raise more questions than, than they answer. And, but there was this hope, you know, we keep plugging away and actually we're on the verge of a, you know, a theory of everything that, that term was bandied about quite a bit and it meant yeah. different things to different people. But the way I looked at it is that, that we would achieve a kind of omniscience and it would be not like a spiritual revelation, although that's what the rhetoric sounded like sometimes, but it would be this rational empirical, um, vision of the world. And the more I look back on that period, I totally bought it. That was one of the reasons why I wrote my first book, The End of Science. I was just so um, awestruck by that idea of omniscience that I decided to explore it. And I ended up writing 
uh, a book saying, no, we're, we, we, we know a lot, but there's certain things that we will never know. But I look back increasingly on that period in the nineties, you know, Steven Weinberg dreams of a final theory, all that kind yeah. of stuff. John Barrow, who I mentioned, who, yeah. uh, he also wrote books about theories of everything. Um, I look back on it as pathological, like it's kind, of, it kind of mass delusion that really smart people um, succumb to. And, and it was also just this unbelievable arrogance among scientists to think that, you know, we're on the verge of understanding everything. And now I see that kind of all crumbling, falling apart. Um, and, and I, you know, so my writing has become increasingly skeptical. I'm more, headed in the direction even of postmodernism, which I always rejected. I mean, I think we definitely, science discovers things. We know a lot of stuff now. Yeah. Never knew before. It's not all sort of constructed and invented. It's discovered. Uh, but when it comes to, we're clueless still about how matter generates mind and consciousness and, and all that. And it looks yeah. like we're going backwards, actually. So I guess I'm just bringing this up to see how you feel about this possibility of really someday understanding the world, maybe with the help of, you know, this is always sometimes this is tacked on to, to these, uh, these claims that maybe it will be machines that discover the final theory. If we mere humans can't do it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about everything you just said. Um, my, all right. It's, Good to have ambition, right? So, so what you you kind of classify as arrogance, I think you could reclassify as ambition. It's yeah. like we we want to, yeah. This is what human beings do, right? This is what sets us apart in so many ways. Is that we want to understand the world around us. We want to tame it. We want to ultimately, te- we you know, the governments pay scientists in order to tame it to produce technology that boosts GDP. I mean, that's that's kind of what it comes down to. But then scientists, you know, subvert that by just doing like this purely kind of uh, investigative blue skies thinking about how the world around us works. And, and so it's a kind of trade-off, like science is a trade-off between utility and, you know, this kind of utopian desire to just make sense of the world around us, which is the same desire that manifests in, in, I think in religion and mm-hmm. philosophy and other things, you know? So, so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there's, um, there's, in fact, I think it's impossible for us not to do that. So once you have a theory, like, you know, Newton developed a theory that, you know, showed how the planets worked and, you know, why the orbits were as they were. It's like, this stuff works, right? You know, you've got mass and this shit, like, does get stuff done. Right. And, and so you're in this position where you, you're able to say, okay, so what can we now do with mass? What's the next thing we can do with mass? And, you know, we, we move on a century or so and we invent the steam engine and we use mass to make it better. And, uh, and everybody's happy, you know, and then we, then we take that, same math that we use for the steam engine and we start talking about the second law of thermodynamics and then trying to apply that to the whole universe and all of a sudden we're in this position of of like wow you know we can describe things in the universe maybe when we do this so it's a natural progression i don't don't think it's necessarily arrogance Hmm. i think uh, i think it's just ambition and it makes your eyes go shiny it's like wow can we really do that can we pull this off you know and and then you have somebody coming along like einstein who who explains how gravity works in terms of curvature of the universe. 
and and you know we see uh, we make astronomical observations that confirm this theoretical idea that he was able to express in like what is it like five page paper or something you know it's just like well I mean that's general relativity so it's longer but you know but all this stuff you know it seems to respond to maths right so what you're going to do you're not going to stop doing maths because it's yeah. been successful so you carry on and you carry on and then we get to the point where you know you've got the standard model and uh, and you start doing accelerator experiments to kind of verify that indeed you can find these particles of the standard model and and it's incredibly successful and you have uh, mathematicians who are working on theories who say well actually you know the math tells us that we should look for this kind of thing and and we look for it and we find it and it's like wow this is incredible you know so at what point are you going to stop doing this yeah you're never going to stop doing this no right? because this is cool this stuff is great you know the governments don't know this of no use whatsoever and they'll keep giving us money so that's fine and uh, and we'll have some spin-offs from this, that, and the other, you know. And uh, you know, you get a spin-off like you know nuclear fission, which governments are very, very happy to discover. And uh, and so you know, it's a kind of you know mutually beneficial situation. But ultimately, the physicists are still saying, "I want to know how the universe works." And um, and and by the way, you know, we're we're finding particles from the standard model, and the standard model all works, and it's great. Except that you know, you then do a thing where you say, "What and what is a particle?" By the way, you know, and we don't know. Um, and, and we may never know the answer to that question, which I, I find hilarious. Uh, it was a great article by um, Natalie Walkover in Quanta recently. I don't know if you saw it. And it was basically, you know, asking all these physicists, what is a particle? And you get this like whole spectrum of answers. <laughs> Nobody knows what a particle is. Uh, obviously, when it comes to quantum stuff, you know, is it a wave or is it a particle? Well, it depends how you want to view the experiment. So, so nobody knows what this stuff actually is, but we can find mathematical descriptions that work. And so, of course, the next level is, well, you know, maybe we can describe how the whole universe works. And remember that slogan, you know, the universe on a T-shirt? Yeah. yeah it was like, you know, we're going to have the equation of the whole universe that describes everything. And it's going to fit on a T-shirt. And this was a kind of, you know, the Weinbergian dreams of a final theory kind of approach. I don't know if I would agree with you that it's crumbled away. Um, I mean, it's, it's hit some serious hurdles. Uh, there's difficult stuff to overcome. And there's no reason to think we'll ever get to the end of it. I, I don't think there's any reason to think certainly we should have solved it by now. And why haven't we? Yeah. Um, I remember I, 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 a couple of years ago, I, I talked to a string theorist in London. It was great. And he just said, I spent my whole career working on string theory. It clearly isn't there yet. And, and there's no reason to believe that it will be there in my lifetime. And he said, and to be honest, there's no reason to believe that it will be there in a hundred years time either. You know, this might be one of those really, really long-term projects that involves mass that hasn't been invented yet. Uh, you know, the, the, this kind of, you know, but as human beings, we can't stop ourselves sort of trying to do this thing. And we've got relativity and we've got quantum physics and they don't work together. Like you can't fit, just like, you know, glue them together and make a final theory that, that sort of describes everything in the universe. So we do have to kind of go back to basics and work out why this theory works and why that theory, theory works and how you might sort of do one that you have one theory that has, you know, takes components from both. And, and, and so, so yes, there is this kind of, it, it seems like arrogance because it, but I think it seems like arrogance because it treads on the toes of sort of spirituality. But I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing that it treads on the toes of spirituality. Yeah, that was, that was really well said. I guess, I guess um, uh, 
I, I, I understand how ambition is maybe a more fair term than, uh, than arrogance. It's the idea that, that there is an ultimate theory that we can find that I'm beginning to see as, as increasingly um, foolish and also dangerous. Um, it's naive. I, I would give you naive. Um, well, well, by dangerous, I mean that I can see, I mean, there have been many times in, in our human history when lots of people thought that they had the final answer to yeah. human existence. I mean, both uh, in terms of religion and, and even um, secular ideas like, uh, I don't know, Marxism or, you know, you've got these kind of gigantic ideologies that are, that are based on, uh, on science or, and reason, supposedly. And, and there are all these true believers. And to the extent that we think we have the ultimate answer, it prevents us from looking for other answers and from taking other answers uh, seriously. So I think it's actually healthier. And this is, this is sort of a philosophical uh, position I've been pushing lately. It's healthier to get rid of the whole idea of a final theory or an ultimate theory, ultimate truth, and accept that, you know, we find these theories like quantum mechanics and relativity and even natural selection, uh, the genetic code that are extraordinarily effective in a certain domain. But that doesn't mean that there are all these other, uh, that there aren't other ways of understanding reality that might be even more effective. Uh, I think that's a healthier attitude for scientists. And it's probably, it's probably the attitude of most scientists, not the ones who write the yeah. best-selling books. <laughs> right? But you know what? I mean, the interesting thing is people write the best-selling books because people want to read the best-selling books, right? You know, you don't, when you write it, it's not a bestseller, but somehow you, you hit something that people actually want to know about and they want it. You know, the reason why all those people read a brief or bought, sorry, a brief history of time uh, it's because people want answers, okay? Yeah. And and so they look to um, a certain brand, a certain type of physicist for answers. Yeah. And um, and you know we obviously we had Stephen Hawking, we had Weinberg. I mean, at the moment we've got Carlo Rovelli, I think, as as emerging as almost like the successor to Hawking in some ways. And it's interesting because uh, he has a new book out. I haven't read it yet. Um, uh, I read The Order of Time, uh, which is a, a wonderful book, but it doesn't give you the answers. You know, he admits as much in, you know, towards the end of the book. He says, you know, I'm playing around here, really. I, you know, I, I don't know how much what I've said about time really corresponds to how time really is. You know, so, so we want to understand what time is, but actually none of the experts know what time is. And, and yet we have this human hunger to kind of, you know, to at least grapple with the answers. And, and so when you say that, uh, you, you know, you think other means of pursuing answers might be more effective. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, you're talking about a kind of spirituality kind of approach or, or philosophical kinds of approach. But uh, my, my point is, what do you, how do you define effective, right? You know, oh, it's effective yeah, yeah. if we enjoy the search for the answer without having to get to the answer. Right. Because we're not going to get to the answer. I don't know if there's going to be a final theory. Why should there be a final theory? So the kind of that's an arrogant thing to say, you know, there will be a final theory because we don't know ultimately how the universe works. You know, 
let's face it, we don't actually know what particles are and space and time are and anything <laughs> else. So, so you know, how can we make a definitive statement about, you know, about, you know, there is a final theory. And I have quite strong opinions about mathematics as being incredibly useful, but I see it much more as invention than discovery. I, I just was, um, my next column for Scientific American is going to be making that very point. I, the, the headline, my working headline is, is the Schrodinger equation true? And it's like, it, just because it works doesn't mean it's true. And yeah, yeah. can say what the Schrodinger equation actually means, how it actually matches up against the, yeah. you know, the physical, the physical world. The, the true isn't the right measure, is it? Yeah. Um, we're, uh, we've already talked for an hour and I, I wanted to ask like no you time. about your Sorry. next book. Also, I wanted to make a plug for, I have, so you've got a book that came out, um, I think last year. I yeah. Got a book that's coming out this month. Yeah. Which I've read. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I and, really enjoyed it. And, and this is, um, the correspondence I see between this and uh, and your book is that I'm also I'm I'm trying to you know I've always been struck by how my own thoughts are I like to think that I'm capable of of rationality but they're swirling around with all these other emotional thoughts um, yeah that are involved you know that have to do with my relationship with my girlfriend and my children and my students and and all this kind of stuff. And I, I try to be reasonable, but you know, often I, I, I fail. Um, what made you, yeah. could I interview you now? Uh, sure. Cause I'm, I'm having read the book, right. And really enjoyed reading it and, and, and knowing how true it was to you, you know, as, as I know you and I understand who you are. And then, you know, having read so much of your stuff and we've talked, you know, late into the night on, on occasions, what made you want to like go down the path of just writing this down and kind of, I mean, it's, it's a kind of self-exposing kind of book, isn't it? Yeah. Um, actually the, um, the proximate cause was that I reread, I, I got my first Kindle. This is about, uh, this is quite a while ago now. It must've been eight years ago or so. And, uh, one of the first books I read was Ulysses by James Joyce. And I, okay. just, wow, this is what, yeah, this is amazing. And it made me, reading this stream of consciousness work made me extremely conscious of all the stuff constantly swirling through my own head. And as I said, I've always been struck by how contradictory my own thoughts are. And so I wanted to sort of, for my own purposes, I wanted to lay it out. I don't know if anybody, I'm, I'm glad that you like it. I don't know if any, how many people are going to want to read this book uh, <laughs> because in some ways it's very self-indulgent, but um it was a wonderful exercise to try to be hyper aware of my own thoughts as I went through the course of a day. And that's the book. The book is basically about a typical day in my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and it, it was, uh, so it was a lot of fun to, to write and sort of take notes on, Oh my God, I just thought that that's interesting. I'm going to write that down. And, and the odd things that pop into my head as I'm, going through my daily routine yeah i mean um, for a lot of people i would say those thoughts that pop into your head are definitely not ones you want to share with anybody but uh, <laughs> yeah. you're kind of fearless with that and it's like fine i'm gonna you know i'm gonna put that in that's that's who i am that's how i think that's how my brain sort of alerts me to stuff well i i changed the name of the narrator and his girlfriend uh that was actually at the insistence of my girlfriend who is horrified that this book has been published <laughs> uh 
But anyway, uh, oh, I'm, 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 I'm still kind of astonished that it, that it uh, has seen the light of day that I found a publisher to, to put it out well, there. Well, I mean, so it's interesting because you say there are parallels between this and the quantum astrologer. And, and I wrote that book in my spare time because I didn't think it would ever find a publisher. But I had to write it because I, it was just going on in my head. You know, and this stuff was going on in my head. And these conversations with Cardano were going on in my head, especially the more I read about him. So the more, you know, I, I started to pay attention, if you like, to what my brain was interested in, you know, the more I had to just get this stuff down on paper. And, um, and it took eight years of my spare time to write The Quantum Astrologer. I wrote two other books in like the time in between, always thinking I need to just put this aside and forget about it. This is the kind of thing to bring out when you're 80 and just, you know, just, <laughs> and uh, I never managed to do it. And eventually I finished it. And I, I said to my agent, I'm really sorry, but I've got this manuscript I'd like you to read. And, uh, and he loved it. So, so, and you know, and it was published and it's great, but there is that side of maybe it's sort of, you know, people who write for a living where they, they become obsessed by this thing that's going on in their heads and in their lives. And they just, you have to write it. Otherwise it just will never go away. Yeah. And for me, it's cathartic. It's my therapy. It's my spiritual path yeah. uh, for ill or good. Uh, and I'm, I'm, the downside is that everything that happens to me, all, all, my entire life is just material for my writing. But um, I, you know, I used to worry about that, but now I've, I've just accepted it. Um, uh, yeah. But anyway, let me, let me ask you, you're working on another book. So right. I'm, I'm working on another book. And, and the interesting thing about this um, is that I realized about two months into the project that if, you know, I, I was obsessed by Jerome Cardano, right? And that's where the quantum astrology came from. And he was this incredibly obsessive and brilliant mathematician. And uh, one of his great projects, which got him into all kinds of trouble, was uh, what, a book that he called The Great Art, which is where he wanted to lay out all of mathematics and how it worked for the, for the lay person. So like the person in the street would understand what mathematics was. I uh, found myself sort of writing a book proposal for a book that I called the art of more, um, which is about mathematics. And um, uh, about two months into the project, I suddenly realized that if, you know, if Cardano could have controlled me from the grave, this is the book he would make me write. So, so, um, so this book is about, uh, the maths you learned at school and how actually, you know, you didn't know it and nobody taught you this at the time, but actually this is the basis of all human civilization. And you don't, you don't ever get taught this. You get taught how to pass the exam, right? You get taught how to, how to do this and then move on to the next thing. And you, you, and you do a hundred examples of that. So you drill through it and you can now do calculus. So, you know, you can differentiate or integrate or whatever. And, uh, and so I wanted to do a book that kind of pulled all that stuff apart and said, but you know, this, this stuff must exist for a reason, right? I mean, you know, we're not differentiating just to pass an exam, surely. And, and so I, I went through all the subjects. So that there's a chapter on arithmetic and then geometry and then calculus and algebra and logarithms. And, uh, and then we get onto um, statistics and then information theory. And in each of those chapters, I try and pull it apart. And like, this is what it is. This is where it came from. This is what it was used for. And, it was, you know, you probably won't ever use differentiation in your life apart from as a leisure pursuit if you want to learn how to do quantum mechanics right but this is what people have this is why people invented it and this is what it helped us achieve and it turns out when you investigate all of this stuff that you um, the kind of central thesis of the book now that i finished it i read is that you cannot have human civilization as we know it without mathematics it just doesn't work 
So every civilization that you ever come across has had mathematics, even if they haven't had writing. So the Incas didn't write stuff down, but they had mathematics that was encoded in knotted strings, you know, and they took census data and they, you know, they kept records of things. You know, the Babylonians invented the quadratic equation solution as a, basically a tax calculating tool, you know. So the minute you have states and rulers and government and, you know, civil servants, then you have to have mathematics for them to do all their stuff. So the Egyptians were calculating, you know, when the Nile was going to flood and then they would reallocate all the, the fields to people, you know, on mathematical basis using geometry and stuff. And if you want to navigate the world and, and go and pillage other nations, then you basically need to know geometry. It's basically the geometry of right angle triangles, sines, cosines, tangents, gets you, you know, sail, sailing around the world safely and you're able to go and conquer other worlds. You know, it's, it's sort of, uh, there was, there was a, a 16th century um, French uh, navigator who said, it's, you know, he sort of shrugged his shoulders in a very Gallic way, I imagine, he said, it's just right angle triangles. You know, that's all you've got to know. <laughs> and so, so this book, um, The Art of More, and the reason it's called The Art of More is partly because it rhymes with The Art of War. Uh, but um, when we are babies, when we're born, we can distinguish three objects. So we can count up to three. And everything after that is just more to us until we learn language for counting and then we learn how to count properly, you know. Um, and so the idea is that, that maths is the art of more. It's like the art of going beyond three and then everything that you can do with all those numbers. Damn, this sounds, this sounds great. That it's been great. such a blast to write. I've, I've never enjoyed anything more. I, I, think, uh, I think, I mean, I could use a book like that. Um, and it's directly related to this, uh, this um, column that I'm working on. As, as you know, we were just discussing, the question is... It, so, you know, I, I just reread Eugene Vigner's uh, essay, The Unreasonable yeah, yeah. Um, Effectiveness, Effectiveness of Mathematics. Mathematics. And, uh, and he, what surprises me is that I thought he was another math is discovered and it's, you know, it's this mysterious thing, and, but that's the language of the universe. And that's not what he's saying at all, really. He's questioning that dogma. And he's saying yeah. math works really well in a particular context, it'll do do the job, but there's no reason to think that there might that there that there aren't these other theories that could also work really well. Math, I think he's definitely going with the math as an invention. It's a very effective tool. Uh, no tools are universally uh, effective, yeah. um, and that's kind of what I'm running with now in this, you know, because of my all the math that I'm learning um, because of quantum mechanics. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So, so one of my things early on, I'm not sure how wedded I am to it now, but, but certainly early on in my research, um, not only did I sort of decide that math was definitely invented, I also um, don't think it, we categorize it properly. I don't, I don't think we've classified it properly. So, so, you know, when we learn stuff at school, we have the humanities and we have sciences and we have math. And, and we tend to associate the math more, much more with the sciences. It's like a tool for the sciences. But actually, you know, studying like history of civilizations and looking at the math that they do in these things, it seems to me it's much more, it's also a tool for the humanities. If you want to set up law, taxation, governance, you know, mathematics is behind it all. And, and there was maths being used for, you know, law, economics. You, know, you can't have trade, for instance, without math, right? 
And so maths was being used for the, as tools for those things far, you know, far, far, long, long before it was ever used in science. I mean, science is such a recent invention. And, and so I kind of think we classify math as something that only science students need to know. But I kind of feel like it's, you know, it should be lumped with the humanities. It's like if you want to really understand history, civilization, law, economics, you need to understand what maths enables in those things in order for them to function. So, you know so I'm kind of looking to reclassify maths, really. You know, what's brilliant about that idea is apart from whether or not it's true, and it, it, that sounds like a very plausible argument to me, that thesis will get you invited by all the humanities departments at major universities, you know, that, <laughs> you know, are, are trying well, that, to. That'd be great. I'm open to, to invitations. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's, um, that's a really provocative idea. Uh, that sounds It's certainly been owned, hasn't it? Don't you think it's been totally owned, uh, you know, and like safeguarded by the sciences. It's like maths is our thing. Yeah. And it's put it, and it's put up, especially with physics, I think it's put up as a kind of fence keeping yeah. out the, out keeping out people like me, keeping out the, uh, the non-professionals. And uh, so your thesis is very inclusive and saying that mathematics is integral to all of for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, we'll, great. We'll, yeah. All right. Um, yeah. We're over our uh, usual allotted time. So Sorry. we'll have to, uh, we'll have to wrap it up there. I can't wait. What's, what's the, when do you think this thing might actually so, it's, uh, I think it's due for publication in September next year. So 2021, September. Oh, oh um, fantastic. That's soon. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty much done. In the, you know, I finished the second draft. Now it has to go through all those processes of editing and, you know, kind of finessing. Um, but I'm really pleased with it. I mean, you know, it's one of those books that every day, I, at the end of the day, I would bore my family rigid about, like, the thing that I'd learned today. You know, it's one of those things you can't help but share, like, this, this little fact that you've just come across. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. I've. I bored my girlfriend by trying to tell her what normalization is, and you know stuff. Like that. She's like, "Oh, please." Um, okay, so make sure that I'm on the list of people for galleys. I definitely sure. want. Would like to read that as soon as it's available because it'll yeah. help me with my quantum project. Yeah. I hope okay, so. uh, Michael. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me, John. It's been great. It's yeah. I've really enjoyed it too. Um, and, uh, you know, good d- luck dealing with all the shit happening in the world. <laughs> I'm glad you're staying busy through all. Yeah, yeah, me too.